Hi there, welcome to the 101st episode of the High Performance Podcast. Thank you very much for all the lovely messages um, congratulating us on hitting a century of episodes last week with Bear Grylls. If you haven't heard it yet, it's well worth listening to. And we've had some lovely feedback from lots of people, uh, including a message that we got on Instagram. We got a lot of these, actually. This one's from uh, from Alice, and she says, I had no idea till I listened to that podcast episode that Dib 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 was the scout motto and stands for do your best, do your best, do your best. Dib Dib Dib. This is something I will tell my children because no matter what results they get, if they've done their best, that is enough. And on that note, welcome to another episode of the High Performance Podcast, our gift to you for free every single week. It's the podcast that turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So today, allow the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entertainers and entrepreneurs to be your teacher. This is what's in store today. And it was almost like a muscle. Eventually, I got to a point where I got a lot of my kind of notoriety for being fearless. My wasn't about like the amount of violence I perpetrated or about the amount of money I made. That's not why I, I got my notoriety. I got my notoriety from being considered fearless. They told me to stop, I never stopped. You know, my mother, who kind of carried me nine months, gave birth to me, clothed me. She begged me to stop. I never stopped, you know. But for this, this is for me. I just don't believe in it no more. Each day I left the house, I'd put on a mask. And then when I come home, the mask is redundant, so I took it off. Exclusion is what will cause a person to subscribe to a way of being that is technically not with the direction of the mainstream or even seen as something that is pleasant, you know, because they genuinely feel as if they have been excluded from the option that is available to everyone else, you know. So for me, it's around an inclusion that needs to happen across the board. This episode is a really interesting one. It's a story about someone's life as much as someone's lessons. So Carl Loco was one of the most feared and in his world respected gang leaders in the whole of London and the stories that he will share with you will shock you and I suppose in a strange way inspire you in equal measure you will be shocked about how a guy from a loving family whose parents went to church and who loved their children ended up getting sucked not just into gangland violence but leading a gang, leading a big gang, being the main guy, sleeping in a bulletproof vest, carrying a gun to go to the chicken shop, being shot at, being stabbed. You'll be shocked that all that happened. But then you'll also be inspired by the fact that he's turned his life around, that he's become an inspirational speaker, that he was helped to end his relationship with gang violence by someone. And he then passed that on and did what he could to stop other young men from either joining gangs or being in gangs. It is, I mean, I really enjoyed the conversation with Carl. He's a really bright, really smart, really deep thinker. And um, he's someone I'd love to get to know further. So I'm going to definitely reach out and, and try and get to know Carl because, um, I don't know, he had a cool energy about him. And um, I thought it was a really, really interesting conversation. So 
I think you will enjoy it as well. Anyway, just a quick reminder, if you can, I would love you to um, hit subscribe on today's podcast. I would love you to leave a review or rate us. And don't forget, as well as listening to every episode, you can watch them all on our YouTube channel as well. Just check out High Performance on YouTube. But for now, it's time to welcome you to a brand new episode of High Performance. It comes next. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I want to start this conversation with a quote from the former American politician, Bill Bullard. And the quote is, opinion is the lowest form of knowledge, for it requires no accountability or understanding. The highest form of knowledge is empathy, because it requires us to walk in another's shoes. And today, we're joined on High Performance by a former gang leader for whom criminal activity was the daily norm. Shot at, arrested in his classroom, armed just to walk to the shops. But as we say so often on this podcast, please suspend your opinion of someone who lived a life like that because that wasn't who he was at his heart it was simply where he found himself it was what he did and it wasn't who he was because today he's totally transformed he's an activist he's an influencer he's a public speaker he's a businessman and he's still looking to change young lives on the streets where he was once in the gangs so please welcome to high performance carl loco it's a pleasure to have you with us um, and I really hope that this is it's cool, isn't it? Because I do want this conversation to change people's minds about what and who gang members are. Based on what you know now, what do you consider to be high performance? High performance. I think firstly, to start, it's relative. I think it's down to wherever someone is at and basically pushing that a few dials beyond their quote-unquote norm. You know, so, I mean, if they're a two at that thing, getting it to a five, I reckon for them that is high performance. But if you're naturally a five at it, you need to get it to seven for it to kind of define itself as high. So, yeah, I think it's all relative, essentially. Let's go right back then to the days when you were not just in a gang on the streets around where you lived, but you were the gang leader. At the very height and the depth of your involvement with gangs, what then did you consider to be high performance? Exact same definition. Really? Yeah. And I was performing. And you saw being in a gang as a form of, of performance, of wanting Absolutely. to be the elite, the best? Absolutely. Coming from a community where those are able to drive German cars and wear Italian clothes and go to tropical destinations are those that are doing it illegitimately. I mean, it did kind of put across the message that if you wanted to, you know, enjoy the finer things or embetter yourself, 
that that was the vehicle to do so, you know, and like anything, you can either do it poorly or you can do it well, you know, so the aim was obviously always to do it well. To do what well though? I mean, whatever like the day entailed, you know, kind of like whether that be huddling and kind of like holding together my, I'm holding down my peers, whether that be um, what we do to earn, you know, in terms of like, you know, you can get creative, you know, the rest of it. I mean, just doing it all well. And obviously it's an environment where it's quite um, fast paced. You know, a lot can change and a lot becomes redundant very quickly. You think the fashion world's got to turn around. It's nothing like the streets, you know. Give so, us an example of that. I mean, you could be feared like first quarter of like, I don't know, 2021. And then like it has like a COVID impact and everything has turned around and you are now like being victimized, you know, at the end of the year, you know, just because you took what we call maybe a few L's, what would that you mean? know. I mean, maybe um, being ridiculed in a certain way, humiliated, you know, shown to, you know, exhibit a certain level of weakness, you know, so, yeah. But you've described yourself, Carl, that you were wearing a bulletproof vest yeah. as a norm. So where were you wearing it? In what kind of fields did it Would require you to wear that vest? Where were you making your money? In what drugs? I mean, do you know what? Um, in regards to actually wearing the vest and where I would wear it, um, I mean, I actually wanted to wear it at home as well as outside the home. There was one instance um, where a young man in um, Peckham was actually um, shot while asleep in his bed with a um, semi-automatic um, gun. So, I mean, these stories are, you know, it's, 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 it transmutes the trauma, you know, because that's just literally what a 10 minute bus, bus journey up the road, you know. So, I mean, from my home to my estate to where I went around, anywhere I could Anywhere I was, I wanted the vest. And if you, um, your second question was around. Was what were you trading in? Was it, yeah. was it guns? Was it drugs? Was it like what sort I of I mean, definitely like both, like drugs, guns, for sure. I really want to give people an idea of how this all happened because I'm, I've heard you say that you were a hardworking kid at school. You came from a loving family. Your parents were immigrants who came to the UK to find a better life for you and your brother and your family. How do you go from there to, to being not just in a gang, but to being the main guy? I mean, there's a few answers I can yeah. provide, but I mean, ambition is one of the main answers, actually. Really? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Ambition. Um, so initially, like when I was about nine years old, I wanted to be an astronaut, 10, a veterinary surgeon, 11. I wanted to be a forensic pathologist because my father was heavy into murder detective shows. And then literally, I always say about 12 and a half, I wanted to be the most notorious kind of street level gang member. And that sort of um, dark evolution is really spurred by what's happening around you. Like just the rate of which is quite exponential if you think about a forensic pathologist to a, you know, so that, that shows it's like an external sort mm. of contamination, you know, is what I was being exposed to. I actually witnessed someone being shot at very close range and the trauma of that was both traumatic and romantic at the same time, you know. So um, at that time there, a young man in my area, his father was actually murdered over a PlayStation game. And this young man was a friend of mine. And the young men um, had that were doing certain things in that area had also attempted to steal games from my house at one point. So my mind kept on thinking, you know what, that could have been my father, might be my father next, 
you know, um, my mother's car was being broken into continually. You know, my brother, I would have to kind of gauge by how he knocked on the door, whether he was being pursued. You know, sometimes you want to knock on the door, but not too hard that you knock the door and then make them be annoyed that you were knocking the door so hard because even they knew their intentions and you, you know, you're going to face them tomorrow, if that makes any sense. Well, it so does. I have to gauge, yeah. And, and it does, and I get the trauma bit, yeah. but where's the romantic bit of that? The romantic bit comes from um, when you're living in a, an environment where it's kind of plagued with powerlessness, you know, not having enough, not being able to do enough. Um, also, um, being the son um, of previously what was um, illegal immigrants, not being able to tread the ground in a certain way, be, always trying to be seen and not heard. And um, just feeling, I mean, powerlessness is the best way to describe it. When you see someone act in certain ways, even though it may on the like, surface is brutal, it actually can be interpreted as powerful. So you can start to feel like maybe you're reclaiming some level of power now. You know what, maybe I do have autonomy over my own situation. Maybe I'm not just, you know, caught in the winds of peril, you know, and and lack, you know. So, so. is it about power for you? I know you got arrested, didn't you, in front of your classmates? I'm sure in a strange way that gave you even more of a sense of power, right? Like Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was definitely about power for me. But in a way that I constantly felt powerless, I just didn't feel like I could use my own agency to change our situation. And the only way that I was able to do so was by using the vehicle of gangsterism, you know, because on a short like term level, it worked. It was very effective. My mother's car went from being broken into to young men helping her over shopping up the stairs. You know, my brother went from um, having to bang the door in a certain way for me to open it quickly to being able to tell other young men to leave people alone because they know that he's my brother. You know, he has that jurisdiction now. You know, um, I no longer had that anxiety that my father might be next. You know, and that in itself kind of helped with a level of peace, you know, even though it's a whack trade-off, but still for a period, you know, it seemed to um, help, you know. So definitely I felt like it was an antidote to most things. And what did your parents make of this? Because they must have seen that there was a very different treatment and wondered where, like, why that was happening. Were they aware of what you were doing? Yes and no. Initially, I'll say a lot more no than yes. I was still, like, my parents be perceived that like yourself, actually. They had quite a skewed understanding of what it meant to be a gang member or involved in gangsterism. So they kind of thought, oh, we'll... we'll brilliant present parents you know we're loving our child is in the top set for every class you know he sat his year nine sats in year six he's been diagnosed a child genius i'm um, we're definitely on the right track you know like he's still very um courteous still very polite got lots of manners you know like when I, he comes home he doesn't engage with us as a gang member still engages with us as our son so i didn't think i had subscribe to anything else but I mean those little telltale signs here and there but I was able to kind of like speak my way out of that to, to a period and to, to a point and then eventually I mean even I had to let them know that this is what it is for all our safety. But what you're describing there Carl is like many parents that will be listening to this almost like their worst nightmare that you think you're doing a good job and you think you're raising your children to be polite and respectful and work hard at school and yet when they leave the house 
you've got no idea what they're doing. What message would you offer to any parent? Like, what should we be looking for with our children that 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 maybe would have given away some of the signs? Do you know what? I don't think is. I don't think it can be purely on observation. I think this is more around conversation and not interrogation at that, but like genuine conversation, you know? And if um, a child feels like they are able to share even the bits that might make them feel shame or they might feel like, you know, mommy or daddy might not be too happy, but still they have um, an opportunity and the space to share and it's safe and they feel safe. You know, because it's different to feel safe in terms of, you know, those are your guardians, but to feel safe to bring them, you know, certain conundrums and certain things that's going on, that takes a next kind of work, which I believe needs to be intentional. So I feel like that's the only way. But in terms of observation, the game will be how good are you at looking and how good are they at hiding. So, so you were kind of, you know, that. to use a daft analogy, you were like Spider-Man, you leave the house, the mask goes on, you're one person, you come home, you whip it off, you're someone totally different. Not a daft analogy. That's exactly it. Absolutely. In my TED talk, I actually use that. I, I literally say each day I left the house, I'd put on a mask. And then when I come home, the mask is redundant. So I took it off. Was it exhausting? Um, absolutely. But I mean, you don't really get to, it's only now when you look back, I realise how exhausting it was, you know, because um, that's all you know. You know, I didn't know any different, you know. So I acclimatised to an extent, but it's definitely very heavy. What I find really interesting is that you weren't just a gang member, right? You were a gang leader. Mm -hmm. And you talk about, you know, being diagnosed as a, or being considered a child genius, sitting your exams earlier than everybody else, your mum and dad holding you up as like this amazing son of ours who's going to change the fortunes of this family. Yeah. Have you considered that perhaps the things that helped you in the classroom to excel were the very same things that helped you excel in gang culture. Like you had the drive and the ambition as wrong as that word feels like using the, the ambition to be the leader in the gang. Yeah, absolutely. Like most skills, it's transferable. You so know, what did so, you do then to become the leader? I mean, it's going to sound a bit, I showed love. <laughs> Sounds like, I mean, it may not be the sexiest thing, but it's the truth. I was, I showed love. I showed love to those who were in a similar limbo to myself. You know, we were neither here nor there, but we kind of had enough and didn't want to live like in fear every day. So we banded together, you know, and we were a little bit less scared together. Then I kind of began to whisper to them the prospect of maybe we don't have to just be even a little bit less scared. Maybe we don't have to be scared full stop. Maybe they can be scared of us, you know? And then literally that's how it started to move because the best defense is offense, you know? So so yeah. how did you manage fear then? So when somebody's pulling yeah. a gun on you or you're hearing about yeah. um, somebody being shot for a PlayStation game, yeah. how did you process and then manage that fear? Yeah, I mean, I leaned into it. Like I was very, I, look, I was very frightened. Like I had even night terrors, like at night to sleep on my own with the lights off. I am petrified. I mean, I will take the long way home, wait for like, I didn't want to ride the bike my parents bought me. I'll be like, you know, people tried to mug me. I'll be punched. You know, I was being chased a lot. You know, like I'd, I was scared every single day. And I realized that courage was in the absence of that thing we were calling fear. Like it was just what you do with it. So I just kind of, I just put fear in my pocket, 
and do what wasn't kind of like supposed to happen, you know? So what the fear would stop me from doing, once I put it in my pocket, I was able to do it, but I was still afraid. You know, I just kept on practicing that. So then they'll be like, all right, give me your phone. And I'm terrified and I'll be like, no, I'm not giving you my phone. And then they'll be like, what do you mean you're not giving it? And I said, no, you're not getting my phone. And then literally will be like, all right, what do we do here? And it might not even be so successful. They might even get the phone at the end, but I practiced it and I just kept on practicing it. And it was almost like a muscle. Eventually I got to a point where I got a lot of my kind of notoriety for being fearless. My wasn't about like the amount of violence I perpetrated or about the amount of money I made. That's not why I, I got my notoriety. I got my notoriety from being considered fearless. So give us the most extreme example that we could understand of where you... Of fearless. Of that, what that fearlessness looked like. I mean, this knife wound that I got on my face, like I knew he had a knife, I'd still fight. I fought him with my fist, you know, while he had a knife. You know, that was quite like, I did that quite regularly on things like situations like that. So, or I won't run if I'm outnumbered. But is that not like... Is that not recklessness or stupidity is, rather than is, fearlessness? It is, but I mean, everything is, you know, <laughs> until you pull it off, you know, it's all reckless and stupid until it lands, you know? So the fact that I landed it, it was then interpreted. Yeah, but you're not, but, but what intrigues me is you were a child genius. You're not stupid. Yeah. So the clever thing in that situation is find a way out of it, talk your way out of it, but to go and have a it fist fight with a knife like fight. That. It seems like that. But then what happens is that you actually end up, um, you magnetize more misfortune when you cower. So the less you cower, it's actually, it's a weird equation, but then the less those situations kind of gravitate towards you because people kind of figure you want not to mess with. You know, so by using kind of like extreme situations where you're able to exhibit the fact that you are actually like not afraid, you know, everyone kind of knows you for that and they tend to not kind of deal with you a certain way. There's, there's a um, Jamaican saying that Duppy know who to frighten and Duppy's basically like ghosts, you know, it knows who to go boo to. If you're not afraid, they tend to leave you alone. And that was... See, but I'd I imagine, and this is probably coming from a different perspective, that you it just increases the size of the target on your back because there's always somebody then that goes, I'll take him down because I want to be the king of the, the hill. I mean, this is something that um, I was later on, I later realised, but these were later revelations. So it kind of goes through um, a sort of, these sort of curves on the graph, you know? Initially, it gave me a level of immunity. It was like everyone knew that you don't really pick on me because if you pick on me, all my friends, I'm going to stick up for it and... Like you, you might be embarrassed. You might have wanted to kind of get some sort and then you might end up with humiliation. So they just be like, all right, I'd rather not. There's too much of a risky venture there, you know? So as my notoriety grew, you're right. It made me more visible. And then other players began to then see me in a certain way. And that's why you just continue, you try at least to continually perform highly and make sure that they don't kind of like, you don't exhibit any kind of weakness in that way. But I was very fortunate. Like, I don't say it in a way, like, it's, it's not a science. You know, as you're saying, one plus one equals two. You know, if I went against the knife, the reality is that I should have got a lot more than two kind of, like, incisions here and there. You know, like, I've been shot at more times than I had birthday parties. 
I tend to turn to flight men that's even come at me with firearms, you know, and it's, it, there's something weird about it. I mean, I watched something on um, YouTube years ago. It never left me, but I was like, that's the closest thing to what I was pulling off sometimes. And it's about these guys in Nairobi that just literally wake up and take the lion's supper. Like there's a whole tribe of lions and it doesn't make any sense because technically the lions should be putting them to flight because they're the apex in that situation. However, just with formation and a kind of like a certain level of kind of like doggedness, for some reason, it just causes them to retreat. And I saw that a fair bit. But again, I was very lucky. But was there ever moments that, you know, like you've escaped a bullet, you've escaped a more serious knife injury that... I get the idea of showing face in front of a wider group of people, but when you go home at night and you that quiet moment where you're in your bedroom, where did the fear come in then? How did you process this and deal with it? I think it was playing out in the hyper performance. I think it was actually playing, my fear was actually playing out in how much I was presenting fearlessness. I don't think it was ever a non-factor. You know, I don't feel like there was ever a time like I put down the fear and had to pick it up like maybe at night where I'm thinking, blimmin' heck, like, look, the day was scary. You know, I think I was constantly scared. Actually, I know I was constantly scared. You know, I just got to a point where I never exhibited that fear and I knew how to manoeuvre with it, you know, but I was always scared. Like, I was definitely frightened. The big juxtaposition here for me is, like, you are such a bright and eloquent person the way you talk about what you went through the fact that you rose to the top of the gang using love i think that's a, an amazing revelation and i think that should be really educational for a lot of people listening to this that think that the whole thing about gang culture is hatred and anger it is and part of the reason you're in that gang is the love for your, and the desire to stay alive effectively but at the same time despite the fact that you were this incredibly bright guy as you are now you just valued life i guess as as worthless because you were looking to take someone's life. They were looking to take your life. You existed in a world where you could be killed, as you said, over a PlayStation game. Yeah. It's so not you though, is it? Were you in the real depth of this? Yeah. Were you aware that like, this is not you or were you so in it? You couldn't see that anymore. Do you know what it is? Initially I knew it wasn't me. Like I've every single day it was, a. Uh, I had to molest myself. <laughs> I had to massage this facade, you know, into place. And it was actually quite painful initially. But I mean, like anything, like acclimatization is a real thing. You do something long enough, consistently enough, you know, um, you will become it, you know. So I embodied it. But yeah, no, it was, it, it was, it was a tough gig. When you look back on it, at the, like at the time everything's going on, so you don't really get to, there's not much time for meditation, you know? You're not getting into a kind of Zen space where you're able to really see what's happening. But the value for life, my own and others included, definitely it, it, it deteriorated, you know, to a point where, I mean, the splitting effect is brilliant for that. You know, um, you could split, even the splitting effect of my own self because I was going by my alias. I mean, I didn't, I don't think it was so much Carl that I didn't value. It was more locks I didn't value was what they used to call me, you know? And I feel like it's 
also with the split effect, effect and us and them, like unless you kind of demonize the other, you can't like, you can't move against them in a certain way, you know, but we do that with almost everything today. That's why prejudice is at an all time high because we really are good at saying them and other. Is there anything left of locks now? Um, absolutely. This is just locks 4.0. You know, but without the locks, it's just car 4.0. So what's left of the locks that was on the streets um, in those days? I got hypervigilance still, you know, like I can't help but watch everything, you know. So I get more from maybe grooves by a lip and an eye than I do maybe conversation, you know, because I've had to learn to read very quickly in very, you know, sketchy and real scenarios. Also, some of the revelations I came to on a street level that, I mean, there's there's better ways of coming to those realizations, you know, but I mean, I was I was fortunate enough to um, live through that. Can you share you know? some of the revelations? I mean, that everybody's human. One of my things that's really kind of given my overall social mobility or I don't know, um, being kind of well networked or my progression and what I mean, is because I humanize everyone. Because the streets lets you know people are very human. Very, very human. So I struggle to be starstruck. I struggle to be kind of intimidated by someone that I know. Like it's just a person, you know. Because everyone's just people, you know, at the end of the day. So uh, the streets really highlight that though. What about your ability to see through other people's masks? I mean, I think it was chicken, you know, just playing that game. Like I was, I had a mask on. They had a mask on and then we just see who's, whose mask is, you know, fast and, you know, um, harder, you know, essentially. So I feel like just kind of being in those scenarios really got me to really be aware that everyone's kind of like presenting a certain foot, a certain face, sorry, you know, that necessarily might not be their face. So what were the best tells that you spotted then? I think it's mainly around the voice. I think certain octaves in there that I kind of got sensitive to. You know, I think the voice don't lie. You know, majority of things your face can do, certain things you can even, your physiology, you can kind of pull it in a certain way, but it's it's kind of harder to control the voice in a, like, yeah. unless you are actually, so I, 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 there's a way that I was able to So someone could be telling up. you one thing and yeah. you're looking at something and your Absolutely. voice tells me something totally Absolutely. Different. It's an incredible study of people, isn't it? That yeah, I don't yeah. think anyone appreciates when it, yeah. I mean, you know, Life and death is on the line. Yeah. Right. So you're looking for every possible percent to yeah. get one over somebody else. Absolutely. And it's come down to the finest of, of margins, which I guess over the years actually kept you alive. Yeah, absolutely. And lends to me today yeah. in a huge way, for sure. So if we can move on to yeah. the Carl today that's sat here, I think the bit that's fascinating in your journey is that transition, that change. Mm -hmm. When I was reading your story, Carl, I was... I was reminded of the change equation that's often used in business, but can be used in personal transitions of the change equation says that there's almost like a formula that we have to have dissatisfaction with where we are, the status quo. We have to have a vision of where we want to go to instead, what the alternative could be. And then we have to know what our first step we can take towards that is. And if you get those three things right, that's enough to overcome the resistance of being stuck in those old patterns. Yeah. So if we can, I'd like to talk about the change that you underwent 
through those three things. So what was the dissatisfaction element of your life? And, and which change are we talking about? Into gangsterism or out of gangsterism? Out of gangsterism. Out of gangsterism. Um, the dissatisfaction actually came when my definition of winning changed. At one point, as I said about high performance, I actually thought we were winning. This is like, this is the cards we've been dealt. This is the best like, that is, has been presented to us, you know? So for a very long time, I believed that what the rest of the mainstream would kind of define as losing, as like loss as gain. Like it was that skewed, you know? Um, so I got really dissatisfied with um, losing. I don't really lose often. I don't like to lose. I don't even play games for that. I don't want it to enter my inner matrix at all. Like my friends would tell you, I'm a complete weirdo in that regard. I just don't like having references to losing. I have So what did the definition become then? I mean, it was basically opposites, you know? So um, whereas it was quite like, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, you know, essentially. So the exact same actions, but your interpretation of it, like I'm like, all right, cool. You went to maybe defend the quote unquote block and then um, now you've been arrested and sentenced incarcerated to X amount of years, but you, you, that was honorable. Like you did what you needed to do to protect us, to protect you and yours. I'm like, big, massive respect. That's, that's worthy, you know, worth the time, you know, of worth, of value, you know? And yeah, I mean, I started to see that as a complete waste of bravery. Like this is a complete squander. Like, I mean, you could be, you're sat down now doing absolutely nothing when, you know, you could be contributing in a certain way and what to defend the council estate that our parents still have to pay council tax for. And technically, like, you know, I mean, they don't even come and fix the sewers. It smells of sewage, you know, but like here we are creating these grand fantasies about what it is. And I mean, desperation does that. Exclusion does that. You know, you begin to kind of fabricate certain things, you know, but that fabrication became unwoven. And I knew that that was losing. I just didn't want to lose no more. So that was the dissatisfaction. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we've spoken a lot about, you know, bravery when yeah. you're involved in gangsterism. Yeah. Let's talk about the bravery of getting out. How on earth do you take the very first step to walk away from this life that you are absolutely wrapped up in? I mean, I wish I could say a way of mitigating risk. There was none, like entering, like it was risky. Leaving was also risky. You know, um, 
I had a huge faith element which helped me, you know. So I was like, you know, I would rather live and go in this way. What you mean, die? Yeah. Than to live and stay. So you'd rather try to leave gangsterism yeah. and be killed than remain a gangster yeah, for, for the absolutely. rest of your life. So I know there was a really important person in this whole equation, yeah. Pastor Mimi, and, and she's yeah. definitely part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. But what was the very, how, what's the first thing you do for people that are listening to this? And, mm -hmm. you know, there will be people listening to this actually who find themselves in not dissimilar situations to where yeah. you were at. What was the very first thing that you, that you did? to start this process? I think the very first thing I did was tell those around me exactly what I'm about to do yeah. and what I'm not about to do anymore. So I, that was a significant That's difficult move. for your yeah. fellow gang members though, because that's then a threat, right? Do you know what? Remember it's all around the, let's take the concept, let's say, imagine I actually pulled this together through love. Yeah? Yeah. Like it's a threat and it's not a threat because we've loved on each other in a certain way and our expression of love has been quite skewed and, you know, perverted. But ultimately, at its essence, that's what it's been. It's mm. been, I am my brother's keeper, you know? So essentially, they knew I was doing what I was doing for them out of love. So I came and approached them and spoke to them also out of love and said, listen, the, the police, oh, they called me on the first name basis. They stopped my father and they'll be like, and they'll tell him about his son, you know, like they got my picture in the station, like, they told me to stop, I never stopped. You know, my mother who kind of carried me nine months, gave birth to me, clothed me, she begged me to stop, I never stopped. You know, but for this, this is for me, I just don't believe in it no more. It's not true. You what know? was their reaction though? I mean, they were very supportive. <laughs> I mean, I know they want to paint it out. They would rather I said something different, but no, no, they were, not. yeah, no, no. I mean, like, I mean, when I say they, it's like DJ Khaled day. It's like, they don't want us to win. You know, it's always day who is actually day. But I mean, like, yeah, that's just the reality. Like initially, then they began to um, account for the loss that I was, you know? And then um, in the weaknesses, the weakness it may have um, articulated to those that we were at loggerheads with, that's when it became, began to become a bit of an issue. And I could tell that there was some slight resentment, you know? But other than that, initially, when I told them about it, and said, I mean, everyone was on board, you know? And even when it went through that kind of like um, trough, I was still able to kind of speak to them and they spoke to me and they were quite like honest with me, you know? But I mean, you can't please everybody, but I'll say the majority was really happy for me. So was there ever an incident then where you thought, almost like a victimless crime, for example, yeah. where you know you could have gone back, earned yourself some money yeah, and then still gone oh, back plenty, on that path. Plenty. So how did you resist that then? Because I connected my exodus to all of theirs. I couldn't do it for just me. Like, if I'm being honest. But me thinking that me breaking away is going to give them, I'll be a living epistle for it being possible. You know, they'll be able to draw inspiration and maybe even take direction from it. I mean, the prospect of that, that motivated me. So even when I knew, you know, cause I still had that agility, you know, I'd spent years developing that. So I, and I needed certain things from time to time, but I always kind of thought that that might be a point of contact for them to no longer believe or no longer attempt 
So as a result, yeah. Which sounds very much like the vision bit. You had the vision yeah. of what you wanted to be instead to on that change Absolutely. equation. So let's talk about Pastor Mimi then, because yeah. from what I understand, the questions she was asking were forcing you to think very much around your identity of Absolutely. who you wanted to be. Absolutely. Tell yeah, us a bit I mean, about- Pastor Mimi has this amazing way of not identifying someone by what they do. Like she genuinely, like it goes over her head. Like it's like the ox, like, oh, introduce yourself. And then you say what you do. She's like, but that's, I mean, who am I meeting? That's you at work or you in that capacity, you know? So she had this stance that she never actually flinched from. It was unflinching. She would say, you aren't a gang member. You are a young man that has embraced gangsterism. It's an ism that you've embraced. If you let go of that ism, you will realize you are not that thing and people will judge you by that ism. But that's literally an ideology that is not who you are, you know? So she kind of made me see it as something that at one point I'd like kind of identified that I am X, I am Y, but she's let me know I am carrying X. That must be so powerful for you to hear that because you want out, you want this exit. But part of the fear is, well, how can I exit something if I am that thing? This is it. And suddenly she's telling you that you're not the thing. She's telling me, I thought I was a demon, but I'm just, I'm not, you know? So I'm like, flipping neck. So maybe we can all dogs do go to heaven. And I think, (laughs) let's be clear for people listening to this, that, you know, Pastor Mimi wasn't, you know, some out of touch local pastor that had no understanding of your life and of gang culture. You know, she, she was in, in her own way, immersed in the world that you were immersed in. She got immersed in it. Initially, she was the equivalent of like being, I mean, the furthest thing from it, like my parents, you know, not having that understanding, thinking that maybe we're stealing mobile phones when we definitely, like, that was like a whole maybe seven years ago, you know, we had definitely gone on to, I don't know, I'm going to call it greener pastures or maybe not so greener pastures, you know? So literally, like, um, she ended up biting off more than she can chew and just chewed it anyway, you know? But she did have that um, drive that she wanted to save her son also. He was in the gang. Yeah, he was involved with me, my right-hand man. And yeah, essentially, she just... Gave a damn, gave it her all, gave up her time and made it happen without no government funding, no real government assistance at all. You know, just kind of just opened up her home and made it happen. See, what you're describing here is the work, it's very similar to the work of a guy called James March, who was a political scientist that looked at how voters voted. So traditionally people think people vote for cost versus benefit. I'll vote for them that saved me the biggest taxes. And what you found is the vast majority of voters vote for identity. And the identity is three questions. Who am I? What's this situation? And what would somebody like me now do in this situation? So I'd be interested to explore this with you, Carl. So before you went to Pastor Mimi and decided this was a life you wanted to get out of, in a situation where you're on the streets and somebody disrespects you, how would you have answered those three questions? <laughs> Who am I? What's the situation? What would I do? I mean, I mean <laughs> again, this is why I'm convinced I was always scared 
because it was quite delusional as to who, like, if I, like, was to give my valid answer at that point, the reason why I would turn to flight maybe 20 young men, you know, on my own is because I'm operating under a level of delusion. I would literally think I am, I don't know, almost like a demigod. Like, literally, it's like I am a street king. Like, I am council estate royalty. I am, like, Brixton's baddest. There's no one beyond, further, bigger, more able, you know? So if you're asking, that was kind of, like, what I would, like, that would be my answer at that time, like, if they asked me. So yeah. today, yeah, what would your answer to those three questions be now? Sure. <laughs> Good question, because it's still a level of delusion, for sure. Otherwise, <laughs> I won't be able to pull off what I'm pulling off all the time. But my answer now would be, I still have this ability angle. So I always feel like I am able. So the moments like a situation comes and kind of says contrary, I kind of present myself as I am able. Like almost like my name is able. Like I am actually able. You know, so I still have that, but in a certain way. So yeah, I'm able. This whole thing though, this comes back to, I think it comes back to education. You know, 99% of people are judging the life that you lived in that gang from the outside with no knowledge or understanding. They don't realise that you got to the top through love. They yeah. don't realise you managed to exit through using love. Yeah. It was only when Pastor Mimi embraced that gang culture life, she was able to see this. And yeah. You know, every, there's an absolute recurring theme here, isn't there? That the reason why you excelled at school was because you were the kind of person that wanted to excel. Yeah. You excelled in the gang because you wanted to excel. Yeah. You're excelling now in your business ventures and all the things you've done and you've raised tens of different hundreds of thousands of pounds for charity because you want to excel. Mm. But what you and everyone else needs to realise is that we're all wearing a mask all the time. Yeah. I'm wearing a mask when I sit here and pretend I've got decent questions. Yeah. You know, Damien wears a mask when he stands up in front of students at a university and lectures to them. Yeah. All of us are wearing a mask Absolutely. all of the time, but none of us put any value or credit in trying to understand why someone is wearing that mask. And mm. that's why this conversation around gun culture is wrong all the time. We just believe they're bad people. Yeah. And as we're talking about here, they are generally good people in bad situations. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what, what should we be doing now to change gang culture today? You know, you turn on the news and it's, oh, absent parents, wrong. Oh, it's uh, grime music, wrong. Oh, you know, oh, it's because they're bored, wrong. What, what should be our message from this podcast to people that are going down the wrong path? Because there's gangs in every town and every city in this Absolutely. country. Do you know what? I feel like it is more a collective move and a collective effort, yeah? And that collective move and collective effort needs to be towards inclusion. Like they did a study um, several years ago in Saudi Arabia and they were trying to work out what the correlation between those who had been kind of picked up as um, extremists and those, and they all seem to have engineering degrees. <laughs> and they're like, what's going on? Like, what's, what's in the engineering degree water, you know? <laughs> so um, essentially with a bit of probing, they realized that basically SA had put a call out to the nation and said, listen, 
And obviously it being Saudi Arabia, most young men answer that call saying we need engineers. You know, we are pushing forward the vision of this country, blah, 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 blah. So they all kind of responded to that call. And in their response to that call, actually, when it was time to actually give the jobs, it was then um, um, outsourced to the UK and US engineers. And then a lot of them felt jilted. A lot of them felt displaced. A lot of them felt resentment. A lot of them felt angry. So they ended up being more vulnerable to indoctrinization and subscribed. If we're talking about the subscription, exclusion is what will cause a person to subscribe to a way of being that is technically not with the direction of the mainstream or even seen as something that is pleasant, you know, because they genuinely feel as if they have been excluded from the option that is available to everyone else, you know. So for me, it's around an inclusion that needs to happen across the board, you know, and that's not just in terms of what region or social economic situation or race or gender or um, disability. I, I'm diagnosed NHS as a, I'm with a disability. You know, I'm heavily dyspraxic. I mean, I have to put my finger down in a certain way to be able to like not like chop and crack the glass, just put it on the table, you know, but most, you know, so I mean like diversity exists. I just feel as if it needs to be acknowledged that there is a case to diversify, which is not only economic, but for the embetterment of like basically doing away with some of these sub pockets in our society, you know? So for me, it would be an overall kind of message of collective like effort towards a collective destiny, that which means that all should be allowed to partake in the collective. There's not one bit of that I disagree with. Yeah. I like the point you were making earlier about the dehumanization of people. Yeah. They, them. Yeah creates division because you don't see them as the same mm -hmm. for anyone listening to this though that that because there's so many things that relate to not just society to culture mm -hmm. to relationships in a classroom or yeah. wherever what's the one thing that anyone listening to this car can do to take that first step towards the kind of society that you describe yeah i mean it is by i mean the 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 the, the quote will have to be it the quote is the answer, honestly. Empathy, not Empathy, opinion. not opinion. It's the highest. Like when I heard that, that struck, like I'm like, blimmin' Because what happens is that people don't realise the other exists no matter what your lens is. <laughs> so for me, initially, the other was um, those from Uptown. Yeah. I was like, I only went, I went Uptown on a mercenary mission to bring resources downtown. I went there expecting to meet people with webbed feet that bleed purple, that literally like, that was what I was going into alien territory. It's definitely them. And I went in there with that opinion. So everything I'm seeing, I'm kind of picking up, you know, when you buy the car and now you see that car everywhere. I mean, it's my bias, my, you know, all of these things that's just in operation. So as a result, it just continued to kind of drive a wedge until I had a real human connection with someone from uptown and I'm like, you guys are human. <laughs> like, regardless of whether I'm listening to X and you're listening to Y in terms of song choice, you're human. Like I might spend my Saturday here, you spend your Saturday there, but we all are spending our Saturday like here on God's green earth because we are human. And when I really, really got that, 
I was able to move in that. And by moving in that, that's what actually got me really well, like kind of raptured. I always describe it as being raptured into the 0.01% of London. But it weren't a complete rapture. It was that same kind of like human connection, love ticket, where I'm like, all right, you're a person, I see you, you see me and we're seen. And if everyone does that, like some people are able to do it on a micro level, some on a macro. It all depends on what your station and status is. And ultimately, I don't even believe in micro and macro because I'm a firm believer in the chaos theory and the butterfly effect and that small things can have great ramifications. So ultimately you don't even know who is going to receive that message who they're going to go on to become what it's going how it's going to affect someone's day so i feel like if we all genuinely move away from opinion and move closer to empathy in terms of and then we actually start to think you know because yeah. the other stuff ain't thinking you know and it's easy to judge and hold an opinion that you know nothing on and then it comes down to action as well yeah so as we sit here talking today you're a father we'll talk about your business interests in a minute yeah are you now Pastor Mimi for other people who are in a place where you once were, bearing in mind you have all the empathy in the world with the story and the situation that they're in? Yeah, I feel like at one point, I, as I'm constantly reiterating like everyone else, you know? So like I think I mentioned, I said I'm like, what, Carl Lockwell 4.0? If I'm being honest, probably 6.0 now, you know? So like for me, it's... I am presenting, I am that to someone else in a certain way. But then I'm like, even maybe that's not enough because I'm like, they need to see something else. And that's why I'm now making sure I embody certain elements that they can draw inspiration from ultimately. My whole game is about mobilization. Talk to us about that because yeah. it comes back to this great phrase, if you can see it, then you can be it. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you want to be seen as yeah. today? I want to be seen as able it sounds like, but able to do, like, for example, there's particular industries that they say that um, someone who's maybe melanated or um, darker skinned can enter and thrive in. I, I am able to do whatever industry, like I have a passion for, a desire, or like I can gain the insights for, I can go there. You know, like, so even in my current industry, which is venture capitalism, a big thing is because there's no other first time fund managers that look like me in terms of like, or like literally have some that look like me, but not really. Maybe I can count them on one hand, you know, in the entire United Kingdom, you know, and then maybe in terms of having the thesis that we have, there's none other. Like, so for me, I just like to trespass that, you know, I'm like, yeah, we are trespassing. Yeah, I am able to. You still feel to like you're trespassing in that world? Um, yeah, absolutely. I am definitely, um, considered by some when I enter other, you know, because I didn't got like, come on, like the majority of venture capital funding goes to like 80% or so goes to um, 1% of the country, which is Oxbridge graduates. You know, I'm not Oxbridge graduate, you know, so definitely there is a level of like trespassing for sure, for sure. Yeah. Which in 2022 feels like a a madness you know like it's we're crazy. all parents i mean you've got a three-year-old now yeah. haven't you and if there's one thing we want we just want equality right absolutely we want our kids to just grow up with every possibility that every other young child has um absolutely. and that, you've you've spoken about brixton becoming sort of the black silicon valley is that yeah. right yeah just tell us what you want that to do for young people like yeah. here's a question right go for it you're an all-in kind of person, right? Oh. So you were all into school, all into gang culture, yeah. all into getting out. Now you're yeah. all into business. Yeah. 
what is your dream for Brixton in yeah. 10 years time from now? Yeah. Brixton is actually a great case study. Yeah. Brixton is almost the kind of like, it can be sad, but it's not sad because we're going to control the narrative and it won't be a sad story, but it's like, it's prime for it. Yeah. It had what we would call huge Afro-Caribbean ley lines and still does, you know, of which, you know, there's certain sayings, if there's blood on the ground, you buy that, you know, and essentially we kind of know then the creatives move in because it's edgy and then this group moves in and then the, uh, no, the yuppies move in because it's, you know, and then now the Starbucks and then we can kind of see the engineering yeah. of sorts. And for me, there's nothing wrong with that as long as people aren't displaced in the process. But currently there is still, because we're going by a certain approach, there are people being displaced, you know? And it's happening implicitly and explicitly, yeah? In what way? Um, I mean, the prices, more disposable income moves into the area, more people will kind of increase the prices of what it is. What was considered, I don't know, to be a no-go area is now prime real estate. You know, you get foreign kind of like, I don't know, um, buyers from, I don't know, China or um, Emirates has never seen or stepped foot into the area and they own the building essentially, you know? So like, and then they say there's a quarter of 5% that they must give to affordable housing, but mm. who technically sees and knows if it is, five, it, you know? However, for me, I just believe in the intersectionality of life. I genuinely believe that you can have an assortment and you can create something that is harmonic. Like I've seen it. Like I felt super displaced in certain situations and scenarios, but I realized that by actually being there, like it was able to create more because it was a blending. You know, there is more, there's a fabric, there's a texture that comes when maybe even seemingly opposites blend and come and collaborate, you know? So for me, it's like, how do we make sure that the, um, the new kind of found footfall and all the rest of it serves those who kind of helped to give it its initial kind of like um, brand, you know? How do we honor that? And for me, working with one of the most significant landlords in the area, who, um, who owns Brixton Village and Market Row, he has some development plans of which he has like given me his, like he gave me his ear essentially. And I was able to kind of like share with him these certain plans to make it house the first black entrepreneurial ecosystem in the UK. You know, 88% of black businesses are self-funded. Should never be the case. OPM is almost an, 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 a non-existent kind of like entity in the black kind of entrepreneurial community. No one knows that you have any access to any money. And even if you do approach those that have access to money, like my co-founder, now co-founder did previously before starting the business with me, he had taken part in 10 of the country's 10 um, top accelerator programs, pitched to over a hundred VCs and wasn't able to raise a penny. He owned the patents, had the partnerships in the NVIDIA. It was his third startups, had the NHS on the line as a client. It was a telediagnostic to be able tech timely with the pandemic backdrop i mean everything he was a dream and literally couldn't raise a penny and why you do know? you think that was he is mixed race right like with dreads <laughs> and wasn't born in the uk forget about it <laughs> like that is not like let's just be honest yeah. like you know what i mean this is not the even if you are you come from a part of europe i mean even venture 
like the landscape even coming from europe is a disability let alone your parents like came from african descent get the hell out of here it ain't happening you know so essentially that is why like we had to exist you know we are a response ultimately like i mean it is more likely for a black woman to win the lottery on a saturday night than to get venture capital funding in the united kingdom is that right oh absolutely that's yeah. horrendous isn't it i mean, I mean it's a horror story a yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's where social mobility yeah. is the, becomes the conversation. Absolutely. And it isn't the conversation. No. You know, that's the issue. What I love about your, your answer as we sort of come towards the end of the conversation is that, you know, what do you want Brixton to be? You want it to be a melting pot of all different races, cultures, yeah. the history of the area needs to stay prevalent as well. But that is the absolute antithesis of being in a gang. One versus another, us Absolutely. versus you, my Absolutely. group versus your group. Absolutely. And if that doesn't sort of complete the circle, I, yeah. I don't know what else does. Amazing. I mean, what a, an incredible story. And the, the final thing that I, I would be wondering if I was listening to this at home, yeah. where does regret sit for you? Do you regret the violence? Do you regret the fear, the anger, the sadness, the pain you've, that you've caused other families and that other families have caused to you and yours? as a parent now, because I think as soon as your child is born, that's when you feel true love. I agree. And now you imagine your mum seeing you go through everything. Yeah. I mean, regret is an understatement. Like, I think it brings me deep spiritual pain that I, um, I feel like I probably navigate on a day-to-day. You know, um, like the moment, I always describe it as when I've seen, my son's name's Lion, yeah? That's the moment I saw Lion's, like, just his naked bum in that like hospital room and I just saw him and I'm like life is about making life better for you and when I said you I, I meant it as a collective I mean like you that are coming after leave the world in a better way than it was for the posterity you know so I mean definitely in terms I agree in terms of the love um statement and acknowledging and embracing and seeing love in a real way However, in terms of the, the regret, like I definitely navigate it on a spiritual level quite deeply. Um, I have regret, but I also have a, an awareness that nothing happens to me, but for me, you know? So, I mean, there's a lot that I would have wanted to have been been different, but essentially if it hadn't been different, I might not be in the situation affording me to be able to share even like today as candidly, you know, um, to like such an audience, you know? Um, so it's like, absolutely like live with regret. Definitely have many regrets. Wish it could have gone a million different ways, you know, but I mean, still very much grateful, um, for what the future can potentially present. Amazing. We always end our interviews with just a few quick fire questions. Sweet. The first one here is the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you need to buy into. <laughs> I've got one of my colleagues in the room, so I might as well not lie because they'll go back. <laughs> we and want not, the truth. They won't respect me. I say every day when we go into like, I've kind of toned it down because I've broken record, but I say everyone must conduct themselves as old, rich, white men. <laughs> Every response we have, every action we make, every dream we're mean, dreaming. Though? Old ritual, I mean, complete privilege. You should move. Isn't that like you have that? that in itself? Yeah. Like, 
Because that's not you. You're not no, an old rich white man. I'm not an old rich white but man. you have to be that to get absolutely and it's an indictment of this society it's quite heavy now that you're saying it it sounds different when you say it out loud in a different context but i mean like i literally and i don't mean it in a way that they should like maybe cold switch but there's a certain level of know that you're entitled Mm. to it have a certain audacity don't shrink you know like come across to your own visions and the desire and what we're building here as an old rich white man. Yeah. So that's one thing I tell those that close to me. I mean, I say it now, I used to be really good at it. I'm not so good at it anymore. Um, self-talk is self-love. So good self-talk, you know? So like, I used to always like, if I would catch like someone saying something about them, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Like cut that out, let's nip that. And they'll be like, oh, it's harmless. I'm like, no, that's very harmful. So that's one bit that's a non-negotiable. And then also I would say anything that they say that they can't do, I'd just be like, it's available. It's usually my answer, you know, that it is available. You know, it might take a bit more depending on the compounded disadvantage, you know, it might take a bit more maneuvering, but it's still available, you know, so with enough hustle, you can get there. So yeah, those are the three. If you could go back to one moment in your life, what would it be and why? I would say the birth of my son. Yeah. Seeing him did a lot. I don't even think I can really, um, I don't think it's quantifiable almost as to what it actually did, but like it did a lot. It changed my complete trajectory. And that was in terms of what I was going to present and contribute to the world. I feel like, like the biggest kind of influence on why I am um, contributing in this way today in terms of like the vehicles I'm using and the industry I'm in is because I saw I'm lying in that room. What does your spirituality do for you? It has granted me an ability to forgive, which is huge. To also acknowledge that I am worthy of forgiveness. And it allows me to operate with a metaphysical edge. Mm. I believe heavy in manifesting like I do like shopping carts you know so it allows me to be moved by not what I see but what I see essentially how important is legacy to you everything I mean my ex-wife won't mind me saying this now it's why I'm not with my (laughs) ex-wife it's literally legacy it means everything to me why, why are you not with her? Because of legacy? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a longer... We're going to need the whole next... Whole you can't, next. Just, you can't give us that little bit film. and nothing else. Like, Come on now. You know what it is? It's just the fact that I take huge pride and I believe life is about productivity. That is what genuinely motivates me over connectivity. So I believe that connectivity is a thing also, but productivity for me on a personal level is huge. To be but explain to, the difference between productivity and connectivity. So yeah. in my definition of productivity is like being able to, like on a Plato level, like ideas, yeah? Being able to execute and realise ideas. That's productivity. Connectivity is more around not creating ideas, but settling with the idea of what who someone else is you know, and having that kind of exchange, you know? So I'd rather interact with 
development, you know, on some level. So in the, in the, in the I mean, short way of it, I'm a workaholic. I would prefer that. I got extreme tunnel vision, you know. So those things aren't always like the greatest thing for romantic relationships, you know. So yeah, yeah. That's a very long way of explaining yeah. that. <laughs> well, you ended up with a baby, so there must have been a period. Yeah. Um, Final question, and this is kind of your one last message to everyone that's that's listened to this podcast. Um, what would you, what's the final thing you'd like to leave them with? Your one golden rule to living their own high performance life. Do you know what? Is I actually heard it from one of my LPs recently. Actually, we've been very fortunate to have like world class LPs, yeah. And this guy's a part of one of the. He's he's in the mix, yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't fit the archetype slightly. Chinese guy, like just kind of like, he's got a different approach to it, but he knows his stuff, yeah? And I told him about the grand vision that we have for Brixton, creating those grooves. We've already began, you know, we do um, activations with the likes of DeepMind and Google, just to kind of give it that kind of fingerprint. Um, and I told him about basically the five, 10 year commitment to this. And he was just like, yeah, no, that, that five year plan's brilliant. All the advice I would say is figure out how to do it in six months. And that did <laughs> really challenge me, you know, and got certain bits in me firing. Yeah. And then my brain started to kind of look for ways where that can be achieved. And I realized that that kind of venture approach yeah, is what I did on a personal level years ago. My whole thing was how can I make one year look like five? Yeah. And I got obsessed with one year looking like, what does even five years look like? I don't know, but whatever in my mind was satisfactory for a five year kind of like progression, I was not satisfied unless it was done in one, you know? So um, I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah. Get it done. Yeah, get it done. Amazing. Carl, thank you so much for that hour and a bit to delve into the story that you've shared with us and um, so many takeaways and so many lessons for so many people with, interestingly, love being the recurring theme from start to finish. Damien, Jake, you know, like we see all the time on the news, don't we, about, you know, a gang member's been shot, you know, someone's been killed in, a, in gang violence in a big city somewhere. We're almost desensitized now to that conversation about gang culture and gang violence. So a conversation like this that kind of challenges us to totally reframe a gang member and a gang member's story and the thing that took them into that gang in the first place um, is going to definitely challenge some people. And some people won't still be listening now because they won't have wanted to continue with that episode. But I think if people did, then they would have realised the real rich understanding and love, actually, that Carl brought to that conversation. Definitely. It's like that old saying that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is just a, uh, a statistic. Mm. And I think what Carl's done there is somebody that's been able to give us that individual perspective see the texture see that it came from a loving family he came from parents that were pushing him to aspire for more he was a clever kid in the classroom and yet he allowed himself to be get dragged into a life because he wanted respect he wanted acceptance he wanted all the things that many of us in our lives take for granted what was the sort of standout 
moment for you? I think it was his point around um, rich old white men and having to act like that. Mm. I mean, I laughed at it when he first said it, but I actually found it really sad that he would feel that that's how he sees the people that hold the power in our society Absolutely. look like. But also there's there's also a real empowerment for him kind of like taking that back and going, do you know what, if that's what we need to imagine ourselves as, that's what we will imagine and then we will be successful because of that. I think that yeah. to, take, to own that is really powerful from him. But for me, it was the fact that light and I still can't quite get my head around that love took him to the top of that gang. Yeah. Love took him out of the gang. You know, love is what's taken him to where he is now. If you'd have said to me before this conversation, how do you become the number one gang leader in Brixton? I'd have been like, I don't know, violence, aggression, yeah. anger, hatred. And the answer is love. Yeah, I think that taps into, like, there's the work of a of a famous psychiatrist, a guy called John Bowlby, that has this theory of attachment theory that most of our connections in life are formed by the age of three. But it's a, it's a very human need that we need to feel belong. We need to feel part of something. So when you feel isolated or on the fringes of society, you look for other out, outliers like yourself. It's how all sort of um, terrorists are often recruited when you read some of the, the literature on that. Mm. And I think Carl's point was really start to hear it explained in that way of giving people a sense of belonging where they feel that they're valued is a, uh, is something that should make us all sit up and pay attention when it comes to demonising or dehumanising groups. What we do is we force them to become a collective. Lots of lessons for everybody. Yeah, massive. I thought it was amazing. And it's now time for, well, probably my favourite part of the podcast, actually, where we get to actually speak to people who've been impacted by high performance. And um, before we speak to our guests for this week, can I just say if you or someone you know has really found either a benefit or a serious bit of learning or a mindset change from listening to this podcast, it would be really cool for you just to ping us a message. Um, Damien is at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey. Or the podcast is at High Performance on Instagram. Send us a message. Tell us why you'd like to feature on the podcast and we may well pick up the phone or ping you a message back and invite you on as we have done to Celeste who joins us this week. Um, Celeste, hi. Hi, thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for being with us. Well, look, sometimes I sort of read out the message that we've received on Instagram, but actually I think it's way more authentic for you perhaps just to share with us why you decided to reach out to High Performance um, and what the podcast has done for you. So uh, the floor is yours. Uh, Thanks so much. Um, I just, first of all, love that I'm listening to a podcast and I'm every week I'm feeling sort of infused that someone's saying, um, you know, teachers are listening and they're taking on these messages and they're sharing them with their students and implementing messages within their classrooms. Um, and so for me, it was more just like, you know what, I just want to say thank you. But I just massively believe in promoting health and optimal living and well-being to everyone, whether that is like other teachers um, or young people. Brilliant. Uh, I know you've nipped out of your lesson now to do this. So thanks very much to you. And let's talk then about school. We do get lots of teachers that listen to this podcast. Um, I'm interested to get your thoughts on why you think it has had such an impact with with teachers. What do you reckon? I think it's sort of like lots of micro messages. I think that it's important that we, well, when, when I listen to the podcast, I think one of like the common themes is that all of these really high performing people, you know, I was listening to one from like Nim Persia, um, Rick Lewis, and uh, even the one on the circle with Adrian Herbert. And I'm like, all of these successful people, but the message is across the board is the same. 
everyone is just human and we're all just working hard and we can just implement these messages day in, day out. My favourite podcast might be the one with Rick Lewis and he talks about just having people to role model behaviours and I think like as a teacher that's the privilege of being in this position is these young people are around you every single day and so it's not always like exactly what you say to them which is changing their lives but it's just how you how you are as a human part of it for me is like if I can use some of these tips that I'm getting from like the high performance podcast on myself hopefully that's like then you know relaying into my lessons and that the young people are benefiting as well so what would you say is the single key takeaway for your own mindset from listening to high performance what's the one thing that if someone said to you hey high performance what's it all about what do you say to them i would say it's like constantly adding little things to your toolbox so yeah every week i just try and take at least one or two things away um and i'll add that to my toolbox and then a lot of it is you know to do with sort of good practice so i think as a mank i obviously was quite inclined to listen to the ones with like phil neville <laughs> and um yeah. so scared. but you know the one with phil neville it was yesterday i was on a run and i was listening to it and i was like you know he gets up at 5 a.m in the morning to do like his his routine with his kids and i was like that's brilliant and just like that for me was, you know, just sort of maybe reminding myself of why I do that sort of thing as well and why I have those habits. Brilliant. Have you heard the one with Eddie Jones, the England rugby coach yet? No, not yet. So we talked to him about his routine and he goes, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not as driven as I was, you know, I'm pretty chilled now. So normally I'm sort of up at five, at work by six, in the gym till seven, get all my work done till eight. And then the players come in at nine and my day's done. And I'm like, hold on, that's you in a relaxed frame of mind? <laughs> what was he like? He had a stroke basically. Um, and that sort of changed the way he operated. But I often think to myself, what was Eddie Jones like 20 years ago? So wow. you'll enjoy that one. Have a listen to Eddie Jones um, yeah, well, on the podcast I, as well. Yeah, please do. It's brilliant to hear that. And I think one of the things that I really I'm frustrated with is when people say, oh, no, you know, the problem with your podcast is that, you know, if you're a normal person living a normal life in a normal house, doing a normal job, how can you be high performance? And you've just answered exactly why we can all be high performance, because, you know, to steal another message from the podcast, Sir Ian McGeehan, when he came on and said, world-class basics, it is about, Celeste, getting up on time, eating the right breakfast, saying something positive to yourself, spreading a, a strong message to the people around you that they can achieve anything they want, taking responsibility for your actions and others' actions. These aren't only available to CEOs and founders and actors and sports stars. This is there for everyone. Um, and I love talking to teachers because kind of, you're basically responsible for taking the messages that we put out there and getting them into the ears and the minds of, of hundreds of young people. Have you got any advice for other teachers who are thinking, what's the best way to, to impart this knowledge to my children? What have you done with your classes or with the, the young people that you've worked with that you've found really effective from the podcast? I think the most important thing is just like you said there, like the basic things matter. So implementing good habits. So it might be one of the things that I do at the end of the majority of my lessons is we have five minutes journal time and we talk about why, especially in sort of like a digital world, like young people don't really have time to themselves because they wake up in the morning and then they're like immediately, maybe there's just tons of distractions, whether that be via like social media. And I know lots of schools now are using digital platforms, like within my school, you know, everything I do goes onto Google Classroom. 
Sometimes one of the things that I've introduced recently is I might have students sort of choose a podcast and we'll go on a walk and we'll listen to a podcast together. And when we'll come back in, we'll have a chat about it. Um, and it's just the small things because ultimately, like, yeah, we're trying to get students to pass exams and to um, prepare them for, you know, finding the right college or university or whatever it is. But actually, like, we're just preparing them to be good humans who can look after themselves. Um, and I think one of the things that Mel Marshall said, and I even posted on my Instagram the other day because I was like, I love this. It's like people before performance. And so, you know, if like as a teacher or as a, as um, an athlete or whatever, you know, if I'm putting the person at the center of what I'm trying to do, the performance will actually just come naturally anyway. And then the other thing of it is actually just role modeling all of the good habits and all of the tips that you can pick up from podcasts like yourselves all of the time. So not just to your young people, but to the other teachers around you. Look, thank you so much for sharing those tips. I love the fact that you just go with your students for a walk and put the podcast on, then have a chat about it after. Journaling at the end of the lesson is something that, you know, I think back to when I was at school, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Imagine if a teacher back then said, we're going to journal our thoughts at the end of a lesson. You just, it just didn't happen. And I love the fact that it is different now. And we are talking to our young people, our next generation, our future in a totally different way. And it's our pleasure that we can just help in some small way. So thank you so much for nicking out of your lesson to speak to us. Thank you so much for listening to the pod. Thank you so much for sharing it with your students. And thank you so much for being an advocate for the High Performance Podcast, Celeste. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Oh, Celeste was really cool, wasn't she? Um, that's almost it for today's episode. But I just want to share with you a tweet from Ian Dark, who's a colleague of mine. He's a, he's a football commentator. And he put this up this week. He said, RIP Brian Hughes, the wonderful Manchester boxing trainer and personality. One of my favourite people in the sport of boxing. They should build a statue of him. United stars Brian Kidd and Nobby Styles used to spar at his gym. And Brian Hughes worked with the likes of Tyson Fury and Scott Quigg. Spent more than 50 years coaching in the Collihurst area of the city of Manchester. He was awarded an MBE. He's got a street named after him. And he's sadly passed away in the last few days at the age of 82. Paul Smith, who was an, a super middleweight, boxer said he had a massive influence on the fight game in Manchester and far beyond and the promoter Frank Warren said between us we made many champions Manchester legends and shared good times along the journey and that goes back many decades and the reason why we're talking about Brian Hughes who was known as the godfather of Manchester boxing is because he was Damien's dad and you only have to sit and listen to Damien talk about his dad for 30 seconds to realise the um, respect and the love and the deep gratitude that Damien has for a man who taught him so much. You may well have heard Damien speak in the past about the fact that he basically grew up in the boxing rings and the gyms of Manchester and that was due to his dad. And so everything that Damien has gone on to do since really comes from his dad, Brian. And... Uh, Brian was a father figure to so many people in his local area. His legacy will live on at Collyhurst and at Moston. Um, many, many people that he worked with, he changed their life and they've gone on to do work that's changed the life of so many people. So it is not an over-exaggeration to say that Brian Hughes has impacted positively the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people. 
And I have no doubt that the reason why Damien wants to be part of the High Performance Podcast um, is because of his dad and the legacy that he leaves behind. So I'm sure you'll understand why Damien isn't with us to wrap up the podcast this week. We filmed the interview you heard with Carl Loco a couple of weeks ago. Um, And since then, his dad has passed away at the age of 82. And of course, we send all of our love to Damien's whole family, um, his children, of course, Brian's grandchildren and... um, Yeah, we keep him in our thoughts um, and he will be back on the podcast as usual next week. So thanks very much for listening. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. Be your own biggest cheerleader. Make world-class basics your calling card. And on behalf of the whole team, myself, Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio, Hannah, Eve, Will and everyone else on the High Performance Podcast, including, of course, Professor Damien Hughes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.